Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series on the genealogies of Scripture, and here Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers are going to discuss Genesis chapter 36 and the genealogy of Esau. Before we get to the episode, please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is linked down there in the show notes. We release weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. And right now we are in the middle of a series on the relationship between the liturgy and our labors. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here is our discussion of Genesis chapter 36 and the genealogy of Esau. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John, and we're continuing in our series of studies in the genealogies in the Bible. We've been looking at the genealogies in the early chapters of Genesis, and we're continuing in the chapters, uh, later chapters of Genesis and into Exodus uh, in the following podcasts. Today we're looking at Genesis 36, which is one of the lengthiest chapters in the book of Genesis, 43 verses. Uh, and it's the genealogy of Esau, uh, the oldest son of Isaac. Uh, and it's a chapter that gives us a, a number of different snippets of genealogy. Never, None of them uh, are taken to a lot of generations. We have a, have a, a couple of generations in a few. We have Esau's wives and sons uh, in the early part of the chapter. Then we have a list of Esau's sons and their wives. And then interestingly, we start to have lists of chiefs and kings. We have lists of chiefs who are chiefs among the sons of Esau in uh, verses 15 through 19. Then chiefs who are among the uh, sons of Seir. Uh, Mount Seir is the place where Esau goes to settle. uh, And the chiefs among the sons of Seir are listed here in this chapter in verses 20 through 30. And then there's a long section where you have a list of kings uh, that are descendants of Esau. So uh, it's, it, is a, it is a genealogy of sorts, but it's also a king list or a chief list. It shifts kind of halfway through the, through the chapter to a somewhat different sort of list. One of the puzzles that come up, comes up here, I think, is the question of what, we, what we're doing, why we have such a lengthy genealogy for Esau. Esau is not uh, the carrier of the covenant. He's not the chosen seed. And yet we have this, um, this very lengthy genealogy for him. And it, it does fit in a sense with other phenomena within the book of Genesis. Earlier in the book of Genesis, we had the genealogy or, or at least a account of uh, a life of Ishmael that immediately followed Abram's death. So Abram's death is followed by the an account of his elder son and then his younger son Isaac follows. Uh, we have a similar phenomenon here. We have Isaac's death and then we have the uh, genealogy of his eldest son Esau uh, and then that's followed by a discussion of uh, the descendants and the activities of his younger son, Jacob, the, the activities of, his, uh, of uh, Jacob's sons in the following chapters. So we have that same that pattern with Abraham and Isaac. Their death is the, uh, is the catalyst for a, uh, a section of Genesis that deals with the eldest son, and then it goes on to a longer section on the younger son. That, that fits in with the thematics of Genesis where you have the replacement of the elder son by the younger son on a number uh, on a number of occasions that's a, that's a recurring theme of course 
But I wondered, uh, James and Alistair, if you had any uh, any other thoughts on the placement of this chapter and the just the role of this chapter in the book of Genesis. Why why does the writer spend so much time giving us a genealogy of uh, what ends up being relatively secondary character and a secondary family in the Bible? There are a number of details within the genealogy that suggest comparisons with other characters that help us to situate um, Esau a bit more clearly within the narrative. Maybe some associations with the character of Lot, with Ishmael, and then also some associations within the family of Jacob himself. So the chapter immediately preceding is concerned with, among other things, the birth of Benjamin, the last of the um, 12 sons of Jacob. And there seemed to be, um, in that time, an emphasis upon the fact that kings will come from Jacob's loins. And immediately after that, you read of kings from the line of Esau. And Benjamin is the first, or to be the head of the first, of a tribe that will produce the original kings. So in the case of Saul, I think maybe we see some comparisons between Saul and Esau that are fleshed out in the book of First Samuel, but they're already hinted at at this point, with Benjamin and Esau being connected together in some way. So I think that's part of the purpose. Maybe I could flesh out some of those ongoing rivalries with Benjamin and particularly um, Amalek. That seems to be a rivalry which just develops and evolves over Scripture. In Judges 5, for instance, it, it's a slightly tricky text, but it feels that there has been some battles and feuds between Benjamin and Amalek. There's a, a word which is probably best translated as against Amalek there. You've mentioned Alistair um, Saul, and uh, he comes into rivalry with Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And I feel that Esther really um, uh, brings that brings that to life again and shapes its narrative in in light of it so we have Haman who is an Agagite resurface and Esther and Mordecai it's fairly clear I think that they're Benjamites and I think that Esther is written deliberately with the the background of Saul and in some ways even uh, Esau in in mind Um, Esther is rises to power in quite a Saul-like way she she is known for her physical um, attractiveness. She's a- adopted. Um, Saul also seems to be adopted by Samuel, in a sense. She's anointed with with oil. And it's very much emphasised at the end of the book that she succeeds where Saul failed. So just as Saul fails to um, kill Agag and um, takes spoils, it's emphasised three times that the Israelites don't take any spoils from uh, Haman and from his wealth and uh, Saul denies it three times and then Israel sort of affirm it three times and then Haman dies in, in quite a Saul-like fashion and Saul falls on his own sword and Haman falls on his own uh, gallows as it were and Haman is hung along with his sons and, and so is Saul. So I think there's the genesis of uh rivalry which develops over a a big sweep of scripture. Yeah, and that's a particular exemplification of the rivalry between Jacob and Esau. Within Genesis, of course, you have Jacob and Esau in person 
as rivals, struggling struggling with each other, wrestling with each other, even before their birth, and then wrestling with, with each other throughout the, the narrative of Jacob and Esau. But that becomes a national rivalry between Israel and Edom that uh, occurs again and again. Uh, in uh, The Edomites are around during the time of David, for example. David conquers Edom. Um, they, they, they keep resurfacing. And then Amalek is a, is a subcategory of the, uh, of the Edomites, of the descendants of Esau. It's that brother-brother rivalry. Um, this is a, the section of Genesis, this middle section, which is dealing with the kind of Cainable dynamics of fratricide and, and uh, brother rivalry, and that's what's recurring. So Israel has various kinds of enemies. They have enemies that are strictly Gentiles that are com- completely outside of their genealogy uh, and outside of their immediate kin. Uh, but then you have these internal rivalries, not only the tribes within Israel itself, but uh, Israel, Israel, Edom is also a kind of internal brother-brother rivalry. And that also has a, has a later history coming to a culmination, I think, in the New Testament with the, the Idumean king, uh, Idumean kings, uh, Herod, who are, uh, seem to be descendants of uh, Edom and then, of course, are persecuting uh, the true son of Jacob, uh, both Jesus and, and his disciples in the book of Acts. So both of those rivalries, they're different levels, but both of those rivalries are variations of the, the rivalry that's set up here in, in Genesis. And the, the relationship between Esau and Jacob is not just a brother-brother relationship. It's a relationship between twins. Um, so we have a sort of diptych between brothers elsewhere in the book of Genesis, between Esau and Jacob, and or between um, Cain and Abel and then Cain and Seth. We see between Abraham and Lot, and then between Ishmael and Isaac. But the relationship between Esau and Jacob is a bit closer than that. Um, it's a relationship between characters that in some respect um, can mirror each other. There's an identity that's, as a result of the twinning of the two, they can see each other in the other. And I think we can see that in the story of Esau as described here. Esau acts in very similar ways to the way that in the way that Jacob acts. He accumulates wealth and then he moves out of the land. And the way it's described seems to echo the way it's described in chapter um, 31, verse 18, in verse 6 of this chapter. There are other ways in which you see similarities. The um, one who's looking after the father, his father's donkeys, that's anticipating the story of Saul. We have the list of the kings and it seems as if it ends up with um, Hadar or Hadad within First Chronicles, who is at the same time as David, but immediately before that, there's Saul of Rehoboth. And Saul of Rehoboth is the king of Edom at the same time as Saul is the king of, of um, Israel. And so the two characters seem to stand alongside each other as mirroring each other. An example of this within the New Testament is the way that um, we see Herod killing the baby boys and in some ways, that's like Pharaoh killing the infants. But in other ways, it's like the way that David and Joab killed the sons of the Edomites. And then at the beginning of Solomon's reign, you have Hadad coming back after being in Egypt, having escaped as an infant, and then coming back to trouble Israel. And so it seems that there's a closer relationship than just brotherhood here. There's a sort of twinning stories. 
and the contrasts and conflicts between them um, are in part because they can see each other in the other and they can't quite escape and um, disentangle their identities to relate to each other from without. So you can think of Ammon and um, Moab, those are related to Lot and there are some certain similarities. There are closer relationships there than they would have with, let's say, the Babylonians or the Egyptians. But in the case of Edom, it's an even closer relationship still. And there I think we're um, seeing something of the significance of Esau's genealogy at this point. As I read the chapter, it feels to me as if Esau is settling in Edom, the region of Edom, and these um, Horites, the descendants of Seir, are already there in, in a way similar to, I guess, how the Canaanites were in Israel, and then Israel came and, um, I guess, didn't do exactly what they were told to do and, and intermingled. Um, and I wonder if um, this list of kings, I, I wonder if the chronology of it, Alistair, if you're right, sheds some light on Israel's desire to to have a king um, in Saul and whether that was almost a um, an envy for the situation of, of uh, Esau's descendants next door. That would certainly, I think, be, um, I think that makes sense. Those list of kings, do you take those to be, I mean, it's, it's not a dynasty, is it? It seems that different kings arise from different cities and families and replace one another. It, it feels a bit more like the judges to me, kind of local chieftains. Yeah, possibly. Uh, Hamilton, in his commentary on Genesis, suggests that this is a kind of elective kingship rather than a dynast dynastic one, because you don't have the the uh, the successors are not sons of the preceding king. Uh, they're given a they're giving a brief genealogy, but they're descended from somebody else. He takes it. I guess he assumes he doesn't really consider the possibility that they're uh, local or regional rulers. He assumes that they're rulers over all of Edom, but then sees it as, a, as an example of elective kingship rather than genealogical dynasty. Yeah, they do reign in different cities, uh, so it doesn't seem to be a dynasty. Uh, and I'm wondering whether this sheds any light on the time. I, I, and I've been out for 10 minutes or so, so I haven't heard your previous discussion. Did you mention like when this was uh, written when was was this uh, nine through forty three in particular inserted at some point into the record because it, it appears like it's the time of the judges. Well, yeah, well Alistair did mention that there's uh, the overlap of the the names at least of the kings with uh, names that we find in the in the time of Saul and David, and suggested that at least the the list is taking us to the time of the of the kings. But you're saying that. You're thinking that in the compositional history of Genesis, you have this, these lists inserted um, at this point. Because they certainly go past the time of Genesis, uh, right. the history that Genesis is recording. Is that, is that what you're saying, Jeff? Yes. Uh, and the, the kings here describe that seem to me more like the kings or the rulers and judges than in, you know, post-Davidic or Davidic-Solomonic period. Yeah, that's what James was suggesting, that they have more of a, yeah, the regional or local um, scope of their reign. 
I think it, it is it is significant that they have the title at least of king, which is something that we don't see in in Israel until much later. Verse thirty one tells us that these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. So it explicitly makes this point that the uh, the Edomites get to kingship before Israel does, which I think it fits with the other uh, some of the other genealogies we've looked at. Uh, that's uh, the case with uh, the genealogy of Cain. Cain's descendants are the one who ones who make all the cultural advances, uh, not the descendants of uh, Seth. Uh, and you have this principle that the the uh, the wicked kind of come to these uh, political and cultural achievements first, but they're actually laying up an inheritance for the righteous. So uh, uh, music is uh, first a Cainite practice, a Cainite art, but it's taken up by later by Israel. Uh, Animal husbandry is a is a Canaanite invention, but it's taken up by all the descendants of Seth and later by the descendants of Abraham and so on. So we have a similar, seem to have a similar kind of phenomenon going on here with kingship. The name Bela, son of Beor, is interesting. First of all, Bela is the firstborn son of Benjamin, and um, so there's a similarity of naming there. But also, some have suggested some association with Balaam, son of Beor, um, which I'll be interested to hear your thoughts upon. I mean, per- personally, I, I don't know necessarily about the identity of, of those people, but um, they, they certainly are similar names built around similar roots. Um, there, there is a town, um, Balua, there is a, a city built from the same consonants in that area. And I think that it, it may be often in these sorts of genealogies, even if it's not the exact individuals referred to, I wonder if scripture sometimes gives us names just so that we can make that connection i, I doubt for instance in the verse 34 that this yovar um jobab is the same person as as job i mean he, he might be but um even if it's not i would imagine that it may well be there just to give us some clues and to help us to associate job with that region james you think the same thing is true like in verse 12 where we have Amalek listed? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I said a few things about that initially. I, I think it's very much setting up the rivalry with Benjamin, which unfolds later in, in the biblical text. Um, there's an interesting comment, actually, I came across in a rabbinic text about this. Where it, it said that um, when Jacob comes back from Padan Aram and bows down before Esau, um, Benjamin hasn't been born, so he's the only one of Jacob's sons who doesn't bow down before Esau, and it's therefore appropriate that he's the one who doesn't bow down before Amalek's descendant in Mordecai, and who ultimately triumphs over um, the Agagites. Now, I'm not sure quite how much to make of that, but it's interesting that a lot of these rabbinic texts read scripture with a real attention to detail and, and make all these connections. Yeah, well, I think, Jeff, you were suggesting that Amalek is not, uh, the Amalek that's listed here is not the Amalek that's the ancestor of the Amalekites that show up uh, yes. in Exodus 17, for example. Is that what you're seeing? Yes. The name is similar, but it's not a genealogical connection. And what would be, what would be the argument for that? That it's not, that Amalek has... As we read about Amalek in Exodus 17 and Numbers 24, that it's, well, I don't, I don't believe it's ever traced back to Esau and 
as part of Edom, is it? I don't know that it is. The one thing I could think of that would be a, con- a counter indicator is the reference. There is a reference to the Amalekites. I don't have it in front of me right now, but there's a reference to the Amalekites in um, the uh, Abraham narratives. The, it re- refers to the land of the Amalekites. Chapter 14. Yeah. Right. So they conquered all the country of the Amalekites or the Amorites. Um, so that's that seems to indicate that the Amalekites are already there in the time of Abraham. You could you could fudge that and say it's the country that will later belong to the Amalekites and later belong to the Amorites. Um, so that's a that's a later interpolation of a name. But uh, Jeff, you're suggesting that the name is there to connect with the later Amalekites, which at least thematically would connect Esau uh, to Amalek, even if they're not blood kin. Is that yes? Is, it, is that the kind of yes. argument? Yeah. yeah, that was the idea. Just the. The theological, historical, or, or theological kind of moral, behavioral kind of uh, connection. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, sorry, I completely misunderstood your question. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it could be a anachronistic term in Genesis fourteen. You do get that kind of thing. You get the Ishmaelites referred to probably before Ishmael could have developed a, um, a people group. But yeah, I, I don't know either way. Uh, James, I wanted to go back to your comment about uh, Jobab. Jobab. Um, I mean, that's that's one jo- possible Jobin uh, reference to the characters in Job. But I mean, Eliphaz, Teman. Yeah. Uh, it seems like you have a cluster of names that are common to Genesis thirty-six and the Book of Job. And I know you, you, before we started recording, you said you were doing some work in Job. And I wonder if you you thought about the that connection at all? Is there, would there be an overlap overlay of some kind of Edomite theme in the book of Job that you can see given those names? Um, I mean, th- there are a fair few connections. I mean, Job is located in ours, isn't he? Which is directly associated with Edom in, I think it's Lamentations 4, probably. Um, and there, there is the, the Temanite. And so um, geographically, it's in it's in the right area. I, I think there's probably a fair bit of um, thematic overlap with the with the names just of that area generally so as you say he's he's first son is eliphaz and and that name is probably my god is gold or like gold or or something and there are other names that have a similar um feel that the name mibzar um mibzar might refer to gold or um the name towards the end of this um genealogy where is it verse 39 Mezahav is waters of gold um there, there are names in job then that might refer to precious metals as well and there is this whole group of names which have a similar shape they have a an ovowel and an avowel so you which aren't common actually in israelite culture so you have lotan or uh, shobal um omar uh, korach uh, and even even Moab. I mean, they don't all do the same grammatical thing, but it, it's that shape of name which you see in Zophar in Job. And I just get the sense that there is, um, if not an identity between the characters, there seem to be names that are common and built from a common culture where there is a, an emphasis on precious metal and, and various other things. And that brings up another, I think, an important part of the, uh, I guess, the message of this chapter. Um, Esau is not the bearer of the covenant. 
it's not tracing his genealogy because he's going to be the main character in the rest of rest of scripture. But we what we see here is a a man and his descendants living under the blessing of God, even though they are not part of that that uh, covenant line. So, as Alistair was pointing out, uh, verses six and seven, you have the growth of his livestock and his cattle and the people that he uh, all the land he acquires in Canaan. It becomes too great, and he has to move on. He has to go elsewhere. So he's uh, prospering. His uh, his flocks and herds are multiplying. He has numerous descendants over uh, generations. They are uh, kings come from him. That's a promise that's given to Abraham initially, and but we see it being fulfilled in uh, not just in Isaac's descendants, but it's being fulfilled in Esau and his descendants. So uh, similar to Ishmael, Ishmael is not the not the uh, seed of uh, the son of the promise. He's not the seed of the promise. And yet the Lord blesses him, and there's this, uh, the blessing of God is not limited just to that covenant line. And I, the, your references to the to the names associated with gold and precious metals suggest that that same thing, that we have a, a prosperous a prosperous country, a prosperous people. There also seems to be um, the connection of the Horites um, might be re- worth reflecting upon. So we have the son of um, of Esau, Eliphaz, um, having a concubine, Timnah. And Timnah, we realize, comes from the line of Seir the Horite, and yet she's reduced to the status of concubine. It seems that Esau has taken over the land of the Horites and subjugated their rulers in some way um, for this to take place. It also seems that there is... Uh, I mean, Esau has already been connected with the land of Seir from chapter 27 onwards. We have the description of Esau in ways that play upon the language of Seir. So connection with goats and with hairiness. And I think that's all playing upon the name Seir. Um, So that connection between Esau and Seir and then the Horites, um, I think that would be worth looking at in more detail. Uh, just to return to something you said, Peter, uh, about just the genealogy as a whole, I've often wondered why it's so big, why it's so long and detailed. And uh, just a basic observation here is that the prophecy given to um, uh, the mother in 25, Genesis 25, was that two nations are in your womb. Now, we're going to hear a lot about the nation of Israel, uh, but um, this is a pretty prosperous nation. And so on one very basic level, it just fulfills the prophecy uh, that was made to Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, good point. So, yeah, the, Lord, the Lord's uh, faithful to his promises, not just to, his, uh, to the specific people, but he's faithful to his promises, even to these ancillary lines of descendants that are coming from Abraham. In um in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter fifteen, the Council. There is a a verse quoted from um, is it from Amos where um, Edom is seems to be reinterpreted as mankind. Um, I should have looked into it. I don't know if that's something that Greek translations do, or if that's just a a different reading of the same consonants that come behind Adam. But I don't know if that is sort of meant to encourage us to sort of view this as uh i don't know just a, a picture of man outside of the promise and having a, a bigger 
uh, a bigger import than it does. Hmm. So um, maybe with an underlying pun on Adam and Edom. I think we've already seen that in chapter um, 25 where the deception of Esau takes place. So Jacob is in certain respects associated with a serpent-type figure, but not necessarily in a negative way. And then the forbidden food, perhaps, the red-red stuff that um, Esau wants. And then immediately afterwards, he's described as Edom. And I think there's a play there first upon the color red, but also upon an association with Adam, that he's someone who despises his birthright, gives it away in exchange for food, possibly forbidden food, as David Daub suggests, that he might think it's blood stew. And that connection between... um There's lots of wordplay going on in these chapters. We see Laban playing upon the word for bricks, playing upon the word for white, and then he's deceived using white strips taken from the white tree, the um, poplar tree, to reveal the white beneath. And there are lots of other um, plays upon words that are going on within those chapters. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is something along those lines here. So, And James, you're suggesting that um, there's a kind of representative character to the nation of Edom, that it uh, this is uh, in some way representing humanity as it exists uh, outside of the covenant people. Maybe, yeah. No, I want you to be dogmatic. I want you to say, I, yes. I, I left a pause there for someone to add something intelligent afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> say, I, here I stand, I can do no other. That's the kind of answer I want. Um, certainly in, um, in Isaiah, Edom... Its judgment is referred to in quite apocalyptic terms, isn't it? There is the sword and and the heavens, and it it does seem to have this bigger significance. I wonder also, in the story of David, the character of Esau seems to be very much a foil for David's own character. So he relates to Jacob primarily. He plays out many of the patterns of Jacob's life. He relates to Nabal, which is Laban backwards. He has a father-in-law who gives him, um, switches the two daughters. He plays out a great many others of the patterns of Jacob's life, particularly tragically towards the end. But then we see patterns from Esau as well starting to surface. Um, certainly see that Saul is related to Esau. But David too, David is one that comes with 400 men to attack um, Nabal, and then he's pacified by the gifts of Abigail. He's also the only other character in scripture described as ruddy. Um, And that connection with Esau is interesting. He's a man associated with his hands in many respects. He's a man of instruments, whether that's um, the musical instrument, whether that's the sling or in the same way, Esau is a man of the hand, um, whereas Jacob is more associated with the voice. David brings those things together. And I wonder whether there's something of the fact that to become a king, there's something of the character of Esau that um, the line of Jacob has to take upon itself. But without becoming Esau, um, I suspect there's there's more going on there. But um, within the text, there are a number of hints pointing in that direction. Interesting. So David would David would embody the kind of uh, he embodies in one person the two the two twins. And I mean the yes. the other the other um, uh, obvious connection or um, manifestation of that would be that he actually he actually does incorporate Edom into Israel uh, by conquering it. So you have you have the reunion of the of the two separated brothers. Yeah, I guess uh, one of the things that I uh, uh, kind of uh, 
intersects with a number of the comments that were made about Esau's parallel with the history of Israel, con a kind of conquest idea uh, with his uh, move into the hill country of uh, Seir. Um, but you also have uh, intermingled with that, you have this theme of intermarriage, which comes up several chapters earlier when he first begins to intermarry with the Canaanite women. Then uh, it brings pain to his parents. Um, he thinks, okay, uh, I'll solve that, and he marries an Ishmaelite, uh, the daughter of Ishmael. So there's um, there's this intermarriage theme that's, uh, that's intermingled here, which also could be linked up with that uh, that um, that uh, foreshadowing foreshadowing of Israel's history. Um, as, as somebody somebody said, the, you kind of have a, a move into the land, but then instead of conquering it, uh, he he marries into the existing inhabitants, which of course is just what Israel is going to do. That's not what they're supposed to do, but once eventually they uh, they move into the land and they lose their distinctiveness by intermarrying with idolaters. One thing I do think we're seeing within the book of Genesis, if we look more closely, is that those characters that we might think are just written out of the story are often very important at beneath the surface of the story. So we've already commented upon the way that Esau's story is um, alluded to or is some of its themes are playing out in the story of Benjamin, in the story of Amalek, in the story of Esau, in the story of David, and that it doesn't just end. This sort of um, text is pointing towards themes that we should be alert to throughout the rest of the text. We see the same thing, I think, with the story of Hagar and the Ishmaelites. There are parallels between um, Ishmael with 12 princes coming from him and Isaac, who will eventually give rise to the 12 tribes of Jacob. But there are more things going on there. We see the story of Ishmael played out furthermore, further in the story of Joseph, where Joseph is um, in a very similar manner sent to the wilderness to Shechem in a way that's playing upon um, playing upon the fact that Hagar is sent out with something on her shoulder um, connected with the word Shechem. And then she runs out of water and then goes at a distance to eat um, the bread while her son is dying. And then eventually her son goes down into Egypt, marries an Egyptian, etc. And we see the same thing playing out in the story of Joseph. And the question is, is the same thing going to play out this time? Or are, is the family going to redeem this lost son? And in the story of Joseph within the land of Egypt, he's in the house of Potiphar. His master is good to him, but his mistress mistreats him and claims that her husband has brought in this Hebrew servant to mock us, to laugh at us, to Isaac at us. And there you have the same accusation that Sarah leveled against Ishmael and Hagar. So I think within these stories of more peripheral characters that we might think are just written out of the story, we're seeing something about Israel's relationship to the nations and also the possibility of the future redemption of the nations. So we see stories like the story of the birth of Moab and played out in the story of Ruth as Ruth and a descendant of Tamar and Judah get together and there's a redemption of those two lines and the tragic stories associated with them in Genesis. So I think these are hints towards future redemption of the nations as well. Um, judgment upon the nations in some cases, but showing different trajectories that things could take and preparing us for a fuller reading of the biblical text. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.